This is the Insulone podcast, where I, Owen Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... She didn't even remember, like, what's long acting? What's short acting? Like, all this stuff was thrown on her. And then she was given all of these papers that had the most vague information. <laughs> We're kind of trying to just say it how it really is and share what it's really like to be a parent or to be a young adult with type 1. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? And welcome back to the Insulone podcast. As I say every week, but I mean very sincerely every week, we always appreciate your time and your ears every single time you listen to this podcast because we know there are loads of different options out there, but most importantly, it proves that you are taking action on essentially improving your life with type 1 diabetes, which is the most important thing. So... This week on the podcast, I was speaking to Raquel Barron, and Raquel is an entrepreneur from Texas, but now lives in LA, and Raquel was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of five, and that's part of the conversation that we have in terms of the differences between being diagnosed earlier as opposed to being diagnosed later. Raquel, as you will hear in this episode, is incredibly passionate about managing her own diabetes, but also hugely passionate about helping others manage their condition too. Obviously, much like myself in terms of why I do what I do. Raquel runs her own business called Type One Together, which offers a wide range of support and services for people living with diabetes, but also for the parents of young children living with diabetes. A huge emphasis of Raquel's business essentially is focusing on parents and their children, which is fascinating to hear about and really, really inspiring to hear about how, again, passionate she is about the whole thing. So inside Type 1 Together, Raquel and her business partner, Amanda, connect Type 1 diabetic children with Type 1 diabetic babysitters, which I've never heard of before. They host the 108 podcast They have a type 1 diabetic grandparents course and various different courses and guides for living a better life with type 1 diabetes. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I was speaking to Raquel for a good bit before and also a good bit after. And this is the type of episode where it didn't even feel like it was an episode. It was just a really enjoyable conversation. So enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. And we'll chat to you soon. And completely unrelated to diabetes initially, you are from Texas and you moved to LA. Why and when did you do that? (laughs) Well, that's a long story in itself. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And um, my journey is a little all over the place, but I moved about two years ago to Los Angeles. And I'll tell the really quick version, but basically I was invited to live with these other Um, entrepreneurs in this house. They called it Adventure House. It was like a little group of entrepreneurs living together. And the idea was that we worked together all week on our startups. And then on the weekends, you would adventure and travel. We were in Utah in the beginning, well, on the border of Utah and Arizona. And um, I was actually invited by one of my type one 
friends that I made in college and she has her own startup unrelated to diabetes. And originally I said no and I turned it down. And then, you know, I had all this stuff going on in Austin where I lived at the time. I had a job and a dog and a long-term relationship I was in and an apartment and all of this stuff. And so I said no. She went. And then a week later, she was like, you got to come just for a week. Like, just come for fun, you know? So I went for a week. And during that week, I realized that I was really unhappy with some things in my life, including my relationship at the time. And uh, I completely changed everything. It sounds like a movie. I feel very weird (laughs) saying it, but I ended up ending that relationship and deciding to stay. I I went to Texas, came back and decided to stay in that house for the full two-month period. And then eventually quit my job, was working full-time on Type 1 Together, which I'll get more into soon. And then they were like, hey, we're going to go to LA next for a month. Do you want to come? And I was like, why not? Like, I'm being spontaneous. This is nothing like me. I very much was not the type of person to do this. But it was kind of the end of the pandemic. And I just like needed to be out again and around good people. And so I went to LA thinking I was only going to be here for a month. And then we all stayed another month and another month. And eventually they all left and I stayed. So um, I'm also found an amazing person. I'm now dating and I found that there was such an awesome Type 1 community here in LA and I was building Type 1 together. And to be honest, LA is not my favorite place ever (laughs) for a lot of reasons, but um, I do have some amazing people here. And yeah, I've been here two years now and we're going to see where life takes me next. So I accidentally moved to LA. Yes. Wow, I wasn't expecting that type of answer, which is amazing. You've you've kicked us off to a good start here, Raquel. (laughs) But... I'm even already for me, there's a lot that I want to kind of touch on from that. Were you working on your own business or were you trying to create your own business even prior to going there? Or did you go there specifically to start your business? Hmm. I was already very much working on it. Um, I think I had started it at the end of my senior year of college and this was, I think a year after that, trying to think, was it a year or two years? But, you know, things were going with Type 1 together, but it was very different than what it's known as today. Um, If you want, I can kind of get into my like story that led me to starting that whole thing. And then maybe the timeline will make sense. Absolutely. Go for it. These are all questions that I was going to ask you anyway. (laughs) Uh, So if you naturally lead yourself in there, please. So even okay. Raquel, for anybody who doesn't know, can you tell us a bit about what Type 1 Together is and essentially what you do? Yes, for sure. So now Type 1 Together, we get families through their first year of diabetes and beyond. So we're really helping kids living with Type 1 and even more so their parents because there's just not enough resources for that group of people. And I was diagnosed at age five. Um, and I really didn't want much to do with the type one community my whole childhood other than doing like one diabetes walk a year and going to one diabetes camp each summer that was for a week. I wouldn't even go to the sleepaway camps. I just went to a day camp and that was kind of forced upon by my parents. And I'm thankful because I definitely needed that community, but um, I never just wanted to have type one friends. And then when I got to college, I joined the college diabetes network Uh, I had a mutual friend who knew the founder of it there and I decided to go very reluctantly. And when I was there in that first meeting, I was like, oh, it's actually so nice to be surrounded with other people who understand what it's like to live with this, you know? 
And that seems so obvious now, but it was like such a big light bulb moment for me. And from that point forward, I just completely dove into the community. I started interning at JDRF in Austin, and then they started connecting me to all of these families who needed babysitters. So I started babysitting for type one families, which was such a good gig in college, just a little extra cash. And it was so meaningful to be around these kids and help them through things. And then I was getting so many requests that I started to connect all of my College Diabetes Network, which is now called the Diabetes Link, by the way. Um, I connected all of my friends from there to all of these families. And I sort of became the Austin type one babysitter. Like people would just get my number from other type one parents and I'd be getting all these messages. And so it became very clear that this was a huge resource that was needed. And I was actually a dance major in college. So very different path. <laughs> um I thought I was going to dance after college and I was very into event planning. So I was also interning with some wedding planners at the time and I was going to do that to make money and dance on the side. That was like my whole plan. But then I just got so invested with the type one space that, um, yeah, I, I started type one together as a babysitter connection service. That's what it originally was. And that's all we did. And it was very different. Like I would connect sitters to exactly the job that they needed. And, you know, it was like much more specific and involved, um, for liability reasons and a lot more reasons, I've taken a different approach now. But we were getting babysitters. That was some sort of gaining momentum. But then the pandemic hit and people didn't need babysitters. And so almost like thankfully, obviously not for COVID, but for this opportunity, like I was forced to think about what else we could offer. And I through babysitting all of these families, I saw firsthand how little information these parents had. It was almost like seeing what my mom went through when I was five mm. and how much they were struggling. And during my time in college, I really got my numbers in a range that made me feel good. And I didn't even know before that, that I wasn't feeling myself, but I sort of had doctors when I was growing up that were okay with me just being higher mm. all the time. And, you know, I mean, I, I was okay. Like I didn't have insane, like crazy high A1Cs, but I don't think I was feeling good. And so when I started to make friends and I also found the online community in college, I learned so much from them and from Instagram, as crazy as that is. It's just the reality. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate. And so, you know, my A1C had come down quite a bit. I finally felt good, which was so necessary while I was dancing all day. Like that was such a challenge in itself. And so I also was like, these parents need to be brought up to speed a lot faster. Like there's no reason that their child needs to be on a roller coaster all day long and or sitting at a really high number all day. And so, um, of course, I'm not a doctor and I never, ever claim to be. And now with Type 1 Together, we have a few diabetes educators that work with us. We have a nutritionist. You all might know her, Meg. Beats and Beaties. I think she just changed her Instagram name, but yes. And um, yeah, I just, I wanted to help these families in a deeper diabetes way than just babysitters. And so now... I've brought on Amanda, who is an amazing mom of a type one three-year-old who was diagnosed at, I want to say two, it's horrible that I'm not remembering the exact time at this moment, <laughs> but um, the crazy thing is her daughter and I actually have the same diversity, which is just such like a weird <laughs> life thing, but um, she has come on and completely changed the game for us because we needed the parent voice and now I think we're a really powerful duo of me sharing what it's been like growing up since age five with type one and now being an adult and thriving. And I love my life so much. And then her being able to share the parent side as she's literally going through it because she's so new to the experience. And so um, we provide tips, tricks. We have 
a course that we just created together that is a really simple self-paced video course. And the whole point, this is something Amanda really wanted and what she actually came to me with the idea of. She just wanted to be able to put something in her ear, like listen to people just sitting on a couch and talking about the basics of type 1 and what it's really like to live with diabetes. Because when she got home from the hospital, she felt like she didn't even remember like what's long acting, what's short acting, like all this stuff was thrown on her. And then she was given all of these papers that had the most vague information <laughs> of how to manage diabetes. And like no one was really saying how to do it, you know? And so we're kind of trying to just say it how it really is and share what it's really like to be a parent or to be a young adult with type one. Um, so the course is really awesome for that. And then I also run a grandparents course with Anna Sabino, who's a diabetes educator, um, we do a six-week course for grandparents to learn how to help their own kids get a night off and help relate to their grandkids because that's so important to them. And they're always like crying on the calls. It's probably the sweetest thing that we do. Um, yeah. It makes me very just fulfilled. And then the babysitter list, we now have 1,200 sitters across the country and growing every single day who are willing to babysit for type 1 families. So if anyone listening wants to be a babysitter, it's totally free for you to sign up and you can always turn down a job that doesn't work for you. So um, yeah. And then we have our diabetes, which are little stuffed animals that also started during the pandemic time. Uh, my cousin crochets. And so she was like, why don't we make a little diabetic stuffed animal? And so now we have a bunch of animals and you can customize whatever colors and devices that you want. There's a little bit of a wait to get them right now. It's about a six to eight week period just because of the amount of orders and they're all handmade. So they're super beautiful. But um, yeah, so we have a lot of different resources and we also just started a podcast. So there's a lot in there just to help make life a little easier and to give people community more than anything. Type one together. That's what it's all about. Wow, Raquel. <laughs> is, is, is there anything you don't do? I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I think we do too much right now, I will say. like I want to be able to focus on certain things, but it's hard because everyone needs such different things when their child is diagnosed. Some people want to dive right into the community and talk to others and other people just want to watch content and just let it absorb, you know? And so we're trying to figure out, um, yeah, what to really focus on, but there's just so much that people need. Well, see, it's definitely a challenge that needs a solution in terms of like what you do obviously has an unbelievably beneficial impact for the people that you work with, which is, I would imagine a very fulfilling thing to do on a daily basis. And it was, it's always something for me, Raquel, obviously, like I was diagnosed when I was 19. So my parents didn't have to really worry about it to the extent of how they would have had to if I was a young child, like your, your mother or your parents, for example. But I've always thought, and I've had numerous, like so many conversations with parents over the years who have young kids who have diabetes. And I almost find it difficult to comprehend how difficult that actually is because I live with it. You live with it. We're old enough to manage it ourselves essentially. And yeah. even that's challenging, but I've always found it almost stressful to imagine being a parent who doesn't live with diabetes. So you don't really understand like the mental and the emotional but then having a young child who is completely reliant on you. I think it is 
almost harder in a lot of ways probably to be a parent of a child with diabetes and a lot of that is because you can't feel what they're feeling inside. And, you know, in a way that's lucky, right? You're not the one having to feel it. But I have so many parents tell me, I just wish I could take it away from my daughter or my son because it's so hard to see them go through it. And I know that I manage my blood sugar a lot of times based on feeling. Maybe you do too. It's mm. such a like, okay, I feel that I'm dropping, so I'm going to treat this differently. Or, you know, you just you get this like intuitive sense, or at least I have over the last 21 years of living with it. And so that's something that they don't get to have. And on top of it, you're literally in charge of someone else's life. And that's just such a different pressure than if I go a little high, like I might be annoyed at myself, but it's my own fault, whatever. But a lot of these parents feel this intense guilt for not keeping their child perfectly in range, which can drive you completely crazy. Hmm. Yeah, it's sometimes a guilt that we can have ourselves in the sense that like I'm, I'm doing all these things I'm carb counting I'm moving I'm drinking water I'm pre-bolusing etc 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 and sometimes we even think why am I not in range even though there are so many other variables that can potentially impact it so as you say it's it's so different being a parent because you don't have that that feeling behind it you don't have that uh, almost sixth sense of my blood sugar is high or my blood sugar is low and you're you're almost even more reliant then on on the tech that can also be faulty from time to time but if you when you think back Raquel to when you were babysitting so much throughout college and you said something that stood out to me a lot that you found that a lot of parents didn't know what essentially they needed to know or weren't given the insight or the support or or the information that they needed like can you give me examples of what you feel was commonly not known and what you really feel people should know for sure I think that first of all I want to say I really respect doctors and endocrinologists they're amazing and sometimes I don't think it's even their fault that they don't have the time to spend with us that would be nice um, that we might need. And so I think that's also why it's important for other resources because I tend to kind of hate on endos sometimes and I don't want it to come across that way at all. But I do feel like a lot of doctors will give you some sort of equation. Like if you eat this many carbs and you give this much insulin, you're going to get this blood sugar. And they don't really teach you about all the factors that are impacting that number. Like there's literally so many. And these parents are just driving themselves insane. They're so mad at themselves because they seem to be doing everything right that the doctor said to do. And it's just not working, you know? And so it ends up impacting their own mental health as well. And a lot of what made diabetes easier for me was just giving myself permission to kind of go with the flow of my blood sugars, like almost like the idea of sugar surfing or really a lot of people share it now on social media, but, um, just intuitively being able to manage based on past experiences. So, you know, if you gave a certain dose for a meal that you thought was the right amount, but literally 10 minutes later, you're already 170 double arrows up, like allowing yourself to give a little more, even though a doctor would probably tell you that's considered stacking insulin, like you probably didn't give enough in the first place if you're 170 double arrows up. And so a lot of these parents will come to us and they'll say, the doctor said to wait two hours until I can give another dose. And it's like, 
if you wait two more hours, your child's going to be 390 <laughs> and sitting there forever. And so it's hard when people want to trust the doctors and I want, I would in other areas of my life too, right? Because uh, they know better and we just don't know what we're doing. But I think over time with diabetes, you just have to learn and be flexible and allow yourself to say, okay, well, yes, that worked last time, but today's different because, you know, they went swimming and they're stressed out from school and, you know, whatever it is, there's always something else that's impacting their blood sugar. So I think that's a big one. Even just not treating every low with 15 carbs, like it's so simple, but some lows need five carbs. And if I, you know, drank a whole juice box when I was 68 study, then I'm going to be 220 minutes. And so, you know, it's all those little things that once you know, it seems so obvious, but like if you don't know, you're just doing everything they tell you to do and it doesn't work. And that is so frustrating. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, <laughs> to be honest. And even just the last point of the the low blood sugar, that that's something that so like it drives me nuts when I hear three low blood sugar with 15 grams of carbs. I completely understand and appreciate the fact that when your blood sugar is low or going low, the absolute priority is to get your blood sugar back up. But there's a difference between crashing down to like 2.2 or like 40 milligram per deciliter. And you need more compared to if you're hovering around like the 75-ish mark or like 3.9 mark millimoles. That that doesn't require 15 grams of carbohydrate. Um, I'm curious to know, Raquel, even from your own experience, obviously babysitting kids with, with type 1 diabetes over the years, did you have a lot of different opportunities to speak with the kids in terms of like how they were, how they felt, what their perspective was and what they understood or thought of their diabetes as? Yeah, it's been interesting to see that because every child is just so different in the way that they interpret it and handle it. And some kids are just so on top of it and they want to take charge. And I think that was me in a way to a fault where like I wanted to make it my thing. I didn't want help with it. And I probably it would have helped me to ask for more help when I was younger, even though I had that support around me. I didn't want it. But um, other kids really struggle. And yeah, they I've had kids take their parents off of Dexcom follow while, while I've been babysitting. Like they just, you know, didn't want them to have to see their numbers anymore like things like that. Um, sight changes. It's always so interesting to see how that goes. I was terrified of needles when I was younger, so I would only let my mom do them and only on my stomach and, you know, all of these things and other kids will just do them real quick and it's no problem. So yeah, it's hard because I, just try to be respectful. I still babysit for some type one families just because I love it. It's so much fun. I like giving back in that way. And the parents need it so bad. They need it so, so bad. They don't have any days off. It's really crazy. But um, yeah, when I do babysit still, it's hard because you want to have that balance of not coming in and being that person that's only going to talk to them about diabetes. Like You don't want to make it all about that. You want to make sure they know that you love them as a kid, not just as someone living with diabetes. Um, but I try to integrate some stuff where I'll just talk to them about it. Or if they're super young, usually they're so excited to see that I also have a Dexcom on and <laughs> I'll try to bring them stickers that we can put on together or change sites together. Even like I'll offer for parents if I live close to them, like if their child is really scared to try a new pump, like I'll come put it on with them. Um, all of those little things really help. And I 
actually had one babysitter when I was younger who had type one. And I remember so vividly like how impactful that was for me and how much more like seen I felt when I was around her. And so, yeah, I think now a lot of these kids and I'm around, their parents have very much immersed themselves in the community. They're going to events, they're doing all the things. So maybe it's more normal for the kids to be around type ones, but either way, I think it's just so cool for them to see like a cooler, big person (laughs) who lives with it. Um, that they can relate to and look up to. What what has the response been from parents? Because I can only imagine the sense of relief that some parents have had knowing that I now have a babysitter for my child who understands mentally, physically, and emotionally type 1 diabetes. Even though for years I have had a babysitter who doesn't have a clue about it. What what's that response been like? Presumably relief is probably a pretty solid word to use, is it? Yes, definitely relief. And the best point ever, which I've gotten to more with families when I was babysitting them consistently in Austin than now, but I love when they're able to come home and say, I didn't even look at my Dexcom follow app the whole time. Like I truly let you watch her or watch him because even though they take nights off when their parents watch their kids or, you know, whoever that kind of understands diabetes, they're still glued to their phone the whole night. And that's not a true night off at all. And so for them to have someone that they can build trust with and hopefully with a lot of sitters on the list, like they're able to just leave, not look at their phones at all and trust that that person is going to manage. I mean, a lot of these parents say, I trust you more than I trust myself. Like you've lived with this for much longer than I've been dealing with it. Mm. And so... That's just so, so cool. And like, it makes me want to go babysit every single day, which I probably could do full time right now if I wanted to. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it just, I want to help them and it helps their marriage. Like, that's something that's really overlooked is that these parents, first of all, have so much more to deal with in terms of figuring out things like parenting styles. But now you're adding diabetes on top of it. And every single decision, it's like, I was talking to Amanda last night, actually, we had her husband on our podcast and he was saying that like, he feels guilty when her number, when their daughter's numbers aren't good, because then he also feels like he's letting his wife down. So it's like a whole nother level that they're dealing with. And there's so many things that there's so much more to argue about, I guess you could say, and so much more to figure out. So giving them that time to just be and like, keep their relationship going, I think is so, so important too, because I've also had parents tell me that they've divorced because of their child's diagnosis, which is dark, but it's just the reality. Like there's a lot of hard things that can come out of it. So yeah, it's really a beautiful thing. I love being able to give them even like two hours. Like some parents all come over, they'll just go grab a quick dinner and come back, but they're just so thankful to do it. Yeah. In a strange sort of way, the impact that it has on the parents, it's almost as if when a young child's diagnosed, three of them are diagnosed or, or two of them are diagnosed because it, it requires so much time and attention and energy on essentially a, a constant basis. And it reminds me actually, Raquel, of a conversation that I had relatively recently. I was at a wedding. I was at a friend's wedding. And one of, like, one of the connections there, basically, her sister had... The connections are relevant. I'm trying, I'm trying to go through the connection. Anyway, there was a parent of a very young type 1 diabetic at the wedding. And she knew of me just because what I do on the podcast and stuff. 
So um, I went over and introduced myself and we were having a conversation and we were speaking for honestly about an hour, an hour and a half, just about how difficult it was for her because, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, like maybe an hour total, like, and she was going into detail just about how stressful it is, how time consuming it is, and even how difficult appointments in hospitals have been. And I'm obviously going to leave this person unnamed, but as you can obviously imagine, as any other type one diabetic out there can imagine, like trying to keep blood sugar stable consistently is a difficult thing to do, particularly if you're doing it for a two-year-old younger than and the child went through a period of like fluctuating blood sugars as we all do from time to time and apparently she was threatened by being told that we're we're going to contact uh child services here because of the kids Whoa. blood sugar even though this poor mother is doing everything in her power to try and understand and manage the diabetes as best she can like so again this goes back to to my one of my initial points of i almost find it hard to comprehend how difficult it is and how difficult it must be and maybe someday if i have a kid and if they have type 1 diabetes i feel like i'm in a good place to help them obviously but even then it's a different sort of challenge because it's not me and my diabetes. It's, it's something that you can't respond to as quickly, almost naturally and instinctively. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you ever feel like you at this point in your diabetes journey kind of manage on autopilot? Whereas these parents, like they can't really ever do that because their child might not eat their whole meal. Like that's a big problem that people bring up. Um, so they don't know how much to dose and they're growing. So there's just like all these other layers. Right. But I don't know for me, I feel like now I, there's a lot of hard diabetes moments I would say, but I am thankful that I haven't faced any like significant burnout recently. And I'm able to just kind of like manage without even thinking about it most of the time, but then there are, you know, times where it, it takes over your life as it does for everyone. Um, but yeah, do you find that you kind of just manage almost automatically as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Like what I call it is automatic management in the sense that it's, it's kind of just, and I always click my fingers when I do this, but it's like part of my day. It's just like part of what I do now. But that comes from, and maybe you can relate to this or not, Raquel, but that comes from, like, I've been living with it now for nearly 12 years. And for a large part of that, I have been, like, obsessed about it in a good way, in the sense that I've wanted to know absolutely everything. I've wanted to try do, do trial and error with food, exercise, stress, times of food, insulin, et cetera, et cetera. So the obsession that I have had with it over the years has kind of led me to a place where it's just automatically part of my day. Now that by no mean might by no means means that I don't have any highs or lows, or I don't have challenging days or weeks. That's just the nature of the condition. But 
for the most part, essentially, it's just kind of part of my day and what I do. And the way I view type 1 diabetes is you are a very different person to me. I am a very different person to another diabetic down the street. We live in different places, live different lives, have different experiences, different perspectives on things, different ideas, whatever it might be. But essentially, we all have the same goal with our diabetes. We all want to manage it to the highest standard where we most importantly feel at our best by having that take up as little time, energy, and effort as possible. That's how I view like the goal of living with type 1 diabetes. So that's why I kind of call it automatic management in the sense that you fit it into your day as opposed to you trying to fit your day around your diabetes. Yes. But, yes. I love that. But again, as you say, you're, you're absolutely right. You can't do that as a parent because it's a, a completely different experience. So actually one, one of the questions, one of the questions that came to mind just as I was obviously looking forward to this episode itself was I'm fully aware, obviously, that if your child or like your young child, let's say a, a toddler, like Amanda's child, who is now three, I believe, isn't, isn't she? Um, yeah. So if a young child's blood sugar is high, obviously we can administer in, insulin and hopefully get the blood sugar down as soon as possible. But in my head, obviously, I'm not a parent up to like, just yet. And I picture, and this actually came from a reel that I watched from your page that Amanda had done about, I think her, her husband was at the pool with, with her toddler and they had a stubborn low blood sugar. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if your blood sugar is high, you can give the child insulin. But if, the, if their blood sugar is low, and they're being stubborn and they don't want to eat glucose tablets or they don't want to drink glucose drinks. Like there must be a grave sense of fear in those sort of situations. Yes. Um, that is something that has happened multiple times. I've even had parents come back home because their child has refused to eat for me. And then as soon as they walk in the door, they ate. <laughs> and I tried to give them everything, honey, juice, fruit, snacks, whatever. Um, it can get really scary really, really fast. And it's crazy because when you're in range or you're at a number that is similar to someone who does not live with diabetes, you're very close to being low. And so I feel like what's been really helpful in my management is working on my, you know, not having a fear of insulin and being comfortable sitting at 85, 90, whatever it is. But for a child, first of all, a lot of times their blood sugars won't just sit as still because they're constantly moving and running around and they have so many emotions. And so you're already seeing a lot of ups and downs. And then on top of that, when they do drop low, there's just so much more risk. And a lot of it comes back to personality. And if that child will always eat or if they're not really hungry, or a lot of parents have some sort of emergency safe food, whether that's ice cream or cookies, you know, whatever they know, they will always eat. But like Amanda was just sharing with me yesterday that her daughter's starting to know that if she doesn't finish her food at dinner, she'll end up getting a treat like that because she needs it for her blood sugar. And so no, <laughs> kids no can get way. really smart in that <laughs> way. Yeah. It makes wow. sense. You know, like yeah. I feel like when I was clever, younger, clever child, I, 
(laughs) (laughs) I tried to be low sometimes because I knew that I was going to get sugar, which is crazy, but it makes sense for a kid. So I don't know. It can get scary. I know that some parents will microdose on glucagon, like they'll give little, little tiny amounts if it gets to that point where their child's in the 50s and they will not eat anything. But Mm. yeah, it's just scary. There's nothing else. I mean, it just is. Mm. So from your experience, Raquel, what do you feel is like the most common challenge that parents have? If you were to try and pinpoint one, what do you feel is something they almost all seem to struggle with, whether it be mentally, physically, emotionally? Is there one standout that people really feel as is, is a big challenge? That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list.